the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Okay, thanks to Mr. Kincaid for bringing us to our show. We are in hollowed ground here. We're 111 Broadway, Wall Street, next to Trinity Church, next to Trinity Church Graveyard. And those of you new to the show, the show is in two parts, not necessarily equal parts, which it won't be tonight. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law, because what I do in real life is I'm a lawyer, Connors and Sullivan, again, we do estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder laws can try, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. We're going to have two guests on tonight. First, we're going to have David Moore, who wrote a book about General Rosecrans. And General Rosecrans is often forgotten you know, in our Civil War. So he's going to be speaking at the Civil War Roundtable on Monday, November 13th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. Beth, what do you know about General Rosecrans? Not that much. Okay, well. Which is why I am looking forward to hearing his his talk. Rosecrans, is, it's a name that you hear all the time, and I just don't know enough about him. Okay, so that's why, that's why you go to the Civil War Roundtable, because to learn more about, you know, as Ed Bars would say, our war. Now, first, <laughs> I'm, let me take this question. From George in Rigo Park. Yes, George, what's your question? Hey, Mr. Connors, how you doing? Uh, yeah, okay. quick question. Uh, we're thinking about doing a trust for uh, my ma's house, uh, but we want to know if uh, we're, we're still going to be able to do one of them 1031 exchanges to avoid on the uh, taxes in the future. All right. Now, is the ha- now ordinarily, you can't do a 1031 if it's just a residence. Is it a multifamily house, part rental, part residential? What is it? Oh uh, yeah, it's a, it's actually a three family. Uh, she lives in uh, the bottom floor, and then uh, I'm on the top floor, and then we got somebody in the middle one. Well, depending on how you, de- I'm paying her rent, so I mean, okay, you know, all right, uh, well, that would help for right. that. Depending on how it's you know written for tax work purposes and what you're depreciating, yes, with the trust, you're still the owner of the trust for tax purposes before the transaction and after the transaction. So you can do a 1031 exchange. Now, what's a 1031 exchange? To those of you not familiar. Well, basically, it allows you to sell one investment property, real estate, and buy another one. And this way, you don't have to pay the capital gain. You defer it to a later time. And, of course, in most of our clients, if we defer that capital gain until after we pass away, there's no tax due. And, of course, in New York right now, there's $5,250,000 tax-free on the death tax. So in a lot of cases, we defer the tax 
entirely. And, and that's one thing some people think. If they put their house in a trust, they can't get the 1031 exchange. They can. Now, again, this is usually for an investment property. If let's say you have a three-family house, and assuming you're depreciating that house on a two-thirds, one-third basis, you could take the two-thirds part of the house that's the business, the rental part, and do a 1031 exchange with that. On the share of the house, then, that's residential, you would get $250,000 exclusions on the residential part, which would be 250 for husband, 250 for wife. So in a lot of cases, I guess you can get that house at tax rate. Did I answer your question, George? Wow, yeah, you definitely did. Thank you so okay. much. All right, so I guess we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes, and we'll talk about our guests coming out tonight. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, November 27th at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Masspeth, Queens, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. at the Atria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard on Wednesday, November 29th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. On Thursday, November 30th, at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03 Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Okay, well, welcome back. Uh, Again, we're going to be speaking about General Rosecrans in a few minutes. But we're going to have a second interview tonight. I'm going to be talking to Christopher Scalia about a book he's edited together with about his father's writings, Justice Scalia. And Beth, you know, I'm uh, you heard Justice Scalia, I think, speak a few times, haven't you? 
Oh yes. You know. The, the most important one, of course, was in Michael when Michael was in high school, and he gave that magnificent talk to the the boys of the regiment. Oh my goodness, I was in tears. Yeah, and he was talking about courage and military service, and you know, one of the things he mentioned, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes or at the end of the show, is that courage is one of the few virtues that the devil cannot malign. You know, it's. It's one virtue that nobody can really criticize. You can't twist it to mean something that's okay to do or be. Okay. Now, just before we got on the air, you told me there was an announcement by Vice President Pence. And what was that about that uh, refers to one of our previous guests on the show? Yes. Michael was the one that actually, young Michael was the one that actually um, heard it. Um, Our tax dollars that have been going to the United Nations to go for them to distribute to refugees um, in the Middle East or wherever. He's pulling those back, and we're going to help um, the people that are refugees directly rather than go through the United Nations we will send our if, – if we know that the Kurds need help, if there's some running, people running away, or if they're Christians in the Middle East, we will be able to directly send our money to them in, instead of funneling it through the United Nations. And Father Paul, of course, had mentioned that Christians weren't welcome in the United Nations um, refugee camps. They were run by the Muslims, and oftentimes the Christians would be persecuted in the camps, so they didn't get help. So this is this is a wonderful. Like I say, Michael is the one that that found out about it, so he has more facts than I do. But I just I think this is great. Okay, now Father Paul, we understand is going to be coming back to the states to finish up his studies at NYU. Uh, this next week, so hopefully he'll be on the show sometime in November, and we'll talk about this right now, but he said it was a problem under the Obama administration to get Christians into the Middle East, and since President Trump has been elected, it's been a lot easier, and of course that's something that's not reported in the press at all, but we'll be talking to him about it toward the, you know, sometime in November when we get a chance. In the meanwhile, I guess we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the Civil War. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. 
Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. On Monday, November 13th, West Point night at the Civil War Roundtable at 3 West 51st Street. The guest speaker is going to be David Moore, and he's going to be talking about one of those generals you really don't hear that much about during the Civil War, General Rosecrans. How are you doing today? Very good. General Rosecrans, now, a lot of people, he's not exactly a household word like Sherman, Grant, Lee, so forth. But but who was he? William Stark Rosecrans was a Civil War general. And at the time that he was relieved from command of the Army of the Cumberland in uh, October of 1863, the New York Times, which at that time was uh, edited by Henry Raymond, who was the head of the Republican National Committee, said only one general had uh, achieved more in the war than Rosecrans, and that was Grant. So even at the point of his removal from his main army, a leading newspaper could say that Rosecrans was the second uh, most achieving general. That would astound most people today. Uh, Rosecrans was in four distinct theaters of the war. He was in Western Virginia in 1861, where he uh, campaigned in against Robert E. Lee for a small uh, part of that campaign. He was in northeastern Mississippi in 1862, where he was under Ulysses S. Grant, and that's where the controversy comes because Grant, of course, is universally known. New biography just came out about him, and Rosecrans isn't, and that's because there was dispute between the two men, and it started there in 1862. Just to finish up with his two other main theaters of the war, he was in Tennessee from uh, late 1862. He fought and won the Battle of Murfreesboro or Stones River. He conducted a campaign called the Tullahoma Campaign, which is considered by many to be the most brilliant campaign of strategy in the war. And then he uh, fought the Battle of Chickamauga. And if he's known to the general Civil War buff for anything, it's probably Chickamauga, where it's uh, considered a defeat at the time. There was uh, some uh, dispute about that. And he was relieved after that campaign, after that battle. And then he ends up the war in Missouri in 1864, where he uh, successfully defends that state against an invasion by Confederate General Sterling Price. But after that campaign, he is uh, relieved from command and does no further service in the war. So they say four 
campaigns, four theaters of the war, four times victorious, four times removed. What gave you your motivation to research and to write a book about General Rosecrans? Well, it was entirely by chance. Uh, I was looking for the grave of uh, Mary Surratt, the woman who was executed for being a conspirator in the Lincoln assassination. I live in Washington, D.C., and she's buried in uh, Mount Olivet Cemetery there. And uh, couldn't find her grave on that day, but found General Rosecrans's wife's grave. And I was curious about where he was buried, and he's buried in Arlington, which, of course, is across the river from Washington. Wondered why they were buried apart. Uh, there was a book written about General Rosecrans in 1961, The Edge of Glory. It's a very good book, kind of a hard book to read because it's so detailed. And I just kept reading superlatives about this man, and that's how uh, I stumbled into the story, really. It, it kind of chose me. I didn't choose, choose it. Now, Rosecrans went to West Point. He did. Okay. Graduated so, fifth in his class. Which is somewhat surprising because he didn't have a formal education before entering the point. Not really. He, right. He, of course, uh, he was uh, prepared for it. He took a few courses, but he was, uh, you know, uh, Peter Cousins, who has written about the campaigns that General Rosecrans was involved in, says that perhaps he was the only Union general of genius. And so I think he was uh, an, an innately smart person. Graduating fifth in his class is not a small achievement. He was an engineer. He did uh, a lot of uh, construction work along the forts of the East Coast and uh, later left the service uh, because it wasn't really a, a growth career. If there wasn't a war going on, went into business. He invented a type of lamp. He got patents for that. He was one of the first to distill uh, a type of uh, oil from coal. So he was a very smart uh, fellow. All right. So eventually, how does he get assigned to be commanding general of the Army of the Cumberland? Well, he, uh, this is after his success in West Virginia in 1861 and in northeastern Mississippi in 1862. He, at that point, is riding very high. His star is high, and Ulysses S. Grant's star is very low. And uh, after um, the Battle of Perryville in Kentucky in 1862, uh, Don Carlos Buell is, is replaced, and uh, Rosecrans gets that, uh, that appointment. So it's He's a rising general in 1862. He uh, has had nothing but success. Uh, Buell has uh, not done so well. Another important issue in this is that uh, Rosecrans certainly wasn't an abolitionist, but he was in the political sense, but he was against slavery. And um, he was a Democrat. Most Democrats uh, weren't against slavery. Buell, of course, was not against slavery. So Buell was going to be replaced. And Rosecrans, really, in 1862, was a logical person as a successful general to replace him. Now, you just mentioned something that I think a, a lot of members of the audience may not realize. Politics was part of the generalship of the Civil War, who got replaced, who got appointed, and so forth and so on. That is maybe the biggest story that's not talked about. And that, I would say, if you were to ask me, well, why did Rosecrans get removed after these four successes? Why was removed in 1864 for the final time? And I would say politics. He uh, wasn't a political person. He was actually uh, sounded out about running for the presidency or the nomination in 1863 by Horace Greeley, no less a person, because in 1863, there was a, uh, a lot of people felt that Abraham Lincoln wasn't the man for the job and that it was, he needed to be replaced. Uh, generals had uh, politicians that supported them, and, and politicians hitched their star to generals. And the man who ended up being the great hero for the North, Ulysses S. Grant, had 
a very big uh, supporter in a man named Elihu B. Washburn. And uh, Washburn uh, kind of picked Grant, uh, supported him when Grant had troubles in 1862, 1863, and uh, was uh, a very powerful man in Congress. And, uh, of course, both of them benefited from uh, Grant's success, and Grant benefited from the uh, support that Washburn was able to uh, give him. I'm just curious, back in, in 1864, was religion a major factor in the political campaigns? Because Rosecrans was Roman Catholic. Wouldn't that have been very unusual for a national party to run him as president or vice president? Yes, and that is perhaps one of the most surprising things uh, to me. Uh, when I was looking for a reason as to why Rosecrans was removed, I thought religion might be part of it. But uh, I think during wartime, uh, alliances across uh, divisions that might exist in peacetime tend to disappear. Well, Rosecrans was a Catholic convert. That's important. Uh, that, that explains his intellectual, that respect to religion, and also his fervor. You know, a few people are as uh, uh, fervent about their beliefs as a convert. He was from Ohio. Of course, there were uh, not just Irish Catholics. You know, in the East, people tend to concentrate on the Irish Catholics, but there were also German Catholics. It's important uh, also to uh, know that his brother, uh, Sylvester Rosecrans, was a bishop in Cincinnati and later Columbus, Ohio. And those were important cities. You know, Cincinnati's across the Ohio River from the slave state of Kentucky. There were a number of German and Irish immigrants there. So it seems that during wartime, uh, religion wasn't that important. It was more important to win the war. And if a Catholic president or Catholic uh, general or candidate would rally, say, the uh, the immigrant populations of northern and midwestern cities, that was uh, seen as more important. After the war, I think it uh, it would have been more of a factor had he run for national office, which he never did. Of course, he did get involved in local politics after the war. He did. Uh, he moves to California. Uh, you know, we, there's no book deals in those days. There's no uh, speaking fees. Uh, he left the Army in 1867. And he was a mine, uh, mining engineer. He moves west. He spends a lot of time in Nevada uh, trying to strike it rich, uh, gets involved in railroad uh, projects. He does uh, serve two terms in Congress from California in uh, the 1880s, 1880 and then again in 1882. But he probably could have run from office from, uh, for Ohio, and uh, he probably could have been a serious candidate uh, for the nomination of the Democratic Party, it seems very unlikely today. But I've read letters and uh, uh, from people. James Garfield is another interesting person in the story, and uh, there seems to be the the fact that he would be uh, able, someone able to unify the various branches of the Democratic Party, trumped uh, whatever religious division there might be. But still, it's not certain that he would have gotten the nomination or been elected. Getting back to his military career, what happens at, at Chattanooga? Chickamauga. Yeah, Chickamauga. Well, this is, of course, the most controversial uh, part of his career. And if, if someone hasn't been to Chattanooga, uh, they really can't comprehend uh, what was uh, what, what the Army of the Cumberland, what Rosecrans was facing. Uh, it's a city on a pretty broad river surrounded by mountains. It's unlike any other terrain that any army uh, faced in the war. And what Rosecrans did, he used stealth to uh, trick the uh, Confederate general, Bragg, into thinking that Rosecrans had gotten behind his army, what's called gotten his rear. 
And that uh, he, he did that by dividing his army. And many people will say, oh, he shouldn't have done that. But Rosecrans and those that supported him, and there really were quite a few in the 19th century, would make the point, well, he had to divide his army in order to uh, confuse Bragg, outflank Bragg. And he did that. But the problem was Bragg was being reinforced. Uh, troops were coming from the Army of the Potomac, uh, excuse me, the Army of Northern Virginia, General Longstreet. Uh, there were also soldiers coming to the, uh, Chattanooga from Mississippi, some of who had been paroled at Missis- uh, from Vicksburg. So the, Un- the Confederate Army was concentrating at uh, Chattanooga, and it actually uh, outnumbered the Union Army. Uh, an interesting question is, well, what was Grant's army doing? What was uh, Sherman's army doing after uh, Vicksburg? So he was outnumbered. He um, was uh, surprised in the sense that he was hoping and actually had been told by some in Washington in the War Department that Bragg was retreating, but he wasn't. So then the question becomes, will he become – will he be able to get his army – into Chattanooga, and of the great vast part of his army had never been in Chattanooga before the Confederates get there. So Rosecrans and his defenders would say Chickamauga ultimately was the battle for Chattanooga. And at the end of that battle, the Union Army was in Chattanooga, and the Confederates had the battlefield, but they didn't have the, the city, Chattanooga. After that, all sorts of reinforcements are sent to Chattanooga. Grant eventually uh, comes uh, – East, he commands this gigantic army that then fights uh, some battles in November, most famously Missionary Ridge. But uh, the, the Union Army was already in Chattanooga. So this is very controversial, very disputed. But if you read what people thought in the 19th century, they would say Rosecrans was the man that got the Union Army into Chattanooga. There was a battle, but at the end of that battle, the Union Army held on to Chattanooga. So why was he relieved of command? Well, that is the great question. Uh, if you read most books, they'll say that he was stunned like a duck hit on the head, that he was he had lost faith, he had lost uh, nerve. If you read books written in the 20th century, particularly books that focus on Ulysses S. Grant, if you read letters, diaries, and books written in the 19th century, uh, they portray a different situation. Uh, they portray Rosecrans uh, fortifying Chattanooga and also making the plans to open what's called the cracker line, the supply line, to uh, uh, resupply Chattanooga. This, again, is something that is little known, much less uh, – it's also disputed, but it's little known uh, that it was Rosecrans that really came up with most of this plan. There actually was an Army Commission in 19, uh, 1901 that looked into this after most of the people involved were dead – and they come to the conclusion that it was Rosecrans who opened the plan. So why was he relieved? Well, here we're going to get to the most controversial thing, and I wouldn't expect anyone to accept this if they didn't do a lot of reading on the topic. And I would say probably politics. I know that's a tough thing for people to accept, and I wouldn't expect anyone to accept it unless they had read what I've read and what others have looked at. I'm not the only person who's come to conclusions similar to this. But um, I would say – well, let me just say this. James A. Garfield, forgotten figure today, but a pretty powerful person in his day. He was a general, and he was asked in 1867 
after the war, after Rosecrans had left the army, he, he, he received a letter from the editor of the New York Tribune, a man named John Russell Young. And John Russell Young said, I see that Rosecrans has left the army. Four theaters of war, four times successful, four times removed. Could you please explain this? And Garfield responds, and he gives several reasons. One, that uh, uh, he got maybe a little bit overconfident, uh, maybe, and also that uh, people uh, were dangling the presidency in front of him, which Rosecrans rejected. He didn't want to do that. And then he says this in this letter, and he says, I also think that the political leaders in Washington became alarmed, and they weren't unwilling to see evil befall him. Now, that's a terrible thing to say. But James A. Garfield said that, not me. And James so Garfield was a Republican. James Garfield was a Republican, right. And uh, James Garfield is a very interesting person. Uh, you know, Rosecrans was religious, as you mentioned, and Garfield was a lay minister in, in the Disciples of Christ Church. So he and, and Rosecrans used to like to sit and discuss uh, theology. Garfield is also uh, controversial because uh, another figure from the past, uh, uh, Charles A. Dana, the editor of the New York Sun, uh, claimed that Garfield had betrayed Rosecrans. He said he had two letters that proved this. He could only produce one. But Garfield also said in a speech in, the, uh, in a letter, in one of those letters, where he expressed some uh, disappointment that Rosecrans hadn't moved faster during the Tullahoma campaign. He said, but I love every bone in his body. So Garfield is a very interesting person in this, yes. But he was a Republican, yes. Okay. But he was he was not plotting against Rosecrans. He would have said people in Washington were. It's very murky. You know, of course, if this were happening today about current politics, people would say, oh, sure, that's how it is. But because it happened 150 years ago, people want to believe that people had uh, uh, purer motives, perhaps. What happens in Missouri? Well, he's sent to Missouri, which is really the Missouri is the ugliest uh, theater of the war. There's it's it's kind of similar to what we see on television in other parts of the world, where we shake our heads and say, "What's going on?" There's guerrilla warfare. There's killing of civilians. It's a very divided state, uh, and and so to be sent to Missouri wasn't a favor. He is sent there. Uh, uh, Lincoln actually said after he had been relieved, "I must do something for General Rosecrans." And uh, he sends him there. And Rosecrans, of course, is trying to get back into uh, a bigger command, but he, uh, he gets wind of a, of a, of a plan, a, a kind of a secret society that, of, the, of the Organization of American Knights that's trying to uh, have a civilian uprising. And some people in the past, people have said, oh, he, he overimagined this. But again, people that look at it now say, well, you know, it could have – there was evidence of it. Why should you ignore it? But the, the thing that actually happened was that Confederate General Sterling Price invaded uh, uh, Missouri in 1864. This is very late in the war, of course. It's not going well for the Confederacy at all. But I guess they're hoping that they will take Jefferson City, Missouri, the capital, and raise a Confederate flag, and this will cause repercussions in the elections of that year. So what Rosecrans basically does is he is able to repulse that raid. And uh, then uh, Price crosses into Kansas. Rosecrans' jurisdiction doesn't go into Kansas. The Price uh, continues retreating, and his army eventually disperses. And the word of uh, the words of one historian: after that, the except for a few skirmishes and guerrilla actions, the Civil War west of the Mississippi River is effectively over. 
If Rosecrans thought this was going to get him back in good graces, he was wrong. Grant was now in overall command of the armies, and he uh, eventually relieves uh, Rosecrans after that campaign, and Rosecrans uh, spends the uh, the rest of the, the war at home. Was he bitter? Yes, he was very bitter. And um, he um, that's one reason why he left the army in 1867, because he realized if, uh, if he was going to have a, a military career in peacetime with Grant as head of the army, he, he, it was uh, hopeless. He was bitter. He never wrote his memoirs. He um, he wrote a few articles late in life, the, the um, or late in the 1880s. You'd say late in Grant's life, because Grant died uh, uh, about 15 years before he did. The most uh, strongest example of this bitterness is that when Grant had uh, financial problems, and there was a bill in Congress to uh, put him on the retired list, which would have given him a pension of some sort. Uh, Rosecrans was against that. And some people felt, well, you're kicking a, a sick man. Interestingly, Charles A. Dana was against it. And Dana, uh, the editor of the New York Sun, had been a supporter of Grant. So some people felt you know, that Grant had earned his money and, and he wasn't entitled to uh, more. But it did pass. But yes, he was bitter. He was bitter towards, uh, towards Grant. All right. Well, if you want to hear more about General Rosecrans and David Moore, show up the Civil War Roundtable of New York, Monday, November 13th, 5.30, the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. If you want to call for reservations, give us a call at 718-341-9811. Thank you, David Moore, for bringing history to life, and we'll see you on uh, November 13th. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. 
Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. On May 17, 2011, I heard one of the most impressive speeches in it, during my lifetime talking about courage and, and military tradition. And the person who gave that speech was one of our great Supreme Court justices who died February 13, 2016. But we've got his son on right now who's got a book on him. Christopher Scalia. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? So your father, again, in, in Xavier High School in May 2011, he gave a great speech about courage and, and military tradition. And he said something that I had never thought before, but courage is one virtue that the devil has a hard time criticizing. That's right. I was just going to say his his point there is that, you know, the courage is the, is the basis for every other every virtue. Without courage, if you have other virtues, you're going to have a harder time exercising them. I thought a very interesting point. Okay, now everybody knows your father is a, is a public man, but as a private man, what points do you want to get across to the reader? Well, he was uh, he was fun to be around. He, I mean, people know by now about his charm and his sense of humor, and those traits were, were evident uh, around the house as well. Uh, he was a hard worker around the house, too, and unfortunately he, he made us work hard with him sometimes in the yard, especially. I uh, can't say that that was a favorite part of um, my uh, childhood, but, but I appreciate it now. And I just think he was, he was a remarkable father. Uh, he, was, he was there for us. He came home for dinner every night, uh, as busy as, as his schedule was. And um, he and my mother were great role models as parents, uh, and I appreciate that more now than obviously more now than I did growing up, uh, now that I have kids of my own. One of the things about your father, which which I found very funny at one time, he gave a short speech at a Legatus meeting, and he started to put on a an Irish brogue. How did he come by that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he was a pretty good mimic. Uh, I, I don't know how he came by the brogue, but, you know, he would have had a lot of um, interactions with, with uh, Irish people uh, at Xavier, in fact, uh, when he was at Xavier. He mentioned what, one of the speeches in this collection is called An Italian's View of the Irish. Uh, and it's basically him at a group of um, Irish Americans, and he's he's kind of teasing them about their some of their dominant characteristics, but then also paying tribute to them and um, and what they've contributed to America. Uh, and he liked to, he liked that brogue around the house too to tease my mother every once in a while too. She her name was Maureen McCarthy, so she was a little bit Irish herself. Did he get that from your father-in-law, or did he just mimic it? I think he just mimicked it. Uh, he, you know, he would have been familiar with the, uh, the Irish brogue um, he mentioned in that in that speech I just referred to. He mentioned it that he heard it all the time growing up. Um, all of the all of the Irish people at his school and in his neighborhood. And uh, he actually expressed a little bit of regret that it, it seemed to be dying out. You don't hear the Irish brogue as much as he as he used to hear it growing up. Now he grew up in Queens. He did. Yes, he was born in Trenton, but uh, grew up in Queens. So what did he take out of that growing up in Queens? From what I can gather, he, he grew up um, around people from a lot of different cultures and perspectives. Um, obviously, a lot of talent, Italians, but a lot of Polish uh, people as well, a lot of Irish people, um, a lot of Jewish people. And he, he, I think that helped him later in life. He was able to form friendships with people from very different backgrounds from his own. Um, the, the most obvious example being Justice Ginsburg, who's very different politically and, and legally, but they were very good friends. Um, uh, he also, one of these speeches is about the games he grew up playing in Queens, and that's just a lot of fun uh, because it's, it's this playful side of him. It begins, he says something like, I am often asked, to what do I owe my athletic prowess? Which is just a great opening line because, for Pete's sake, nobody ever asked him about his athletic prowess. He, he sat on a, on a bench all his life, so nobody was asking him that. Um, but it's a great description of the games he played growing up and kind of a tongue-in-cheek rehearsal of uh, 
the skills he, he learned uh, playing those games and the muscles he developed. A lot of the public may not realize this, but uh, your father had a great sense of humor. He was very funny. And that comes through in a lot of his opinions. Um, but I think it, it's even clearer in these speeches. Uh, he, as you're supposed to do when you open speeches, he would often open with a, with a funny joke. But then the joke, the humor comes in throughout the speeches. And that, that example I gave about the sports speeches is one of the many examples of self-deprecating humor in his speeches. I think that, that might surprise people. Um, but he, he was very good with self-deprecating humor as a way to kind of win over the audience. Now, another important part of your father's life was his faith. Can you briefly describe that? Sure. He was a, he was a, a cradle Catholic and a devout Catholic all his life. Um, it, it was in a, a very important part of him, central to him, really. A number of his speeches, uh, speeches that were very important to him, second only to the legal speeches that we have in the collection, are the speeches he delivered about um, about religion. Uh, he delivered a speech about the importance of going on religious retreats and and what one can, how one can benefit from them. Uh, there's another speech about the role his religion plays in his job as a judge, and uh, another about uh, the importance of Christians to be prepared to be seen. Uh, as fools, because the wisdom of Christians is seen by fools as uh, by secular society. Uh, you know, he he instilled that r- religious belief and devotion in his family. He really taught by example. Um, it was clear that going to mass and, and being a devout Catholic uh, and adhering to Catholic teaching was was important to him. And I think I think we tried to follow suit. Again, as you mentioned, did he ever face any ridicule from some of the sophisticates because of his primitive religion? Oh, of course. Uh, there, there's one pretty great uh, interview from uh, a few years ago with New York Times, uh, New York Magazine, in which the interviewer uh, expressed his surprise that my father believed in the devil. And my father's response was, you don't? Uh, and I think he often found himself um, in situations where reporters just couldn't, uh, couldn't um, understand where he was coming from because his, his uh, Catholic faith was... Um, so profound, so deep, and and not something that a lot of court reporters or other reporters shared. But then there were also a lot of people, a lot of people who admire him most did share that faith, and it's one of the things they admire most about him. Not uh, obviously not necessarily Catholics, but but Christians in general and people of other faiths as well. I remember once Justice Thomas spoke, and he said that your father brought him back into the Catholic faith. That is that is my understanding as well. Um, I. I've heard uh, stories from a number of, peop- number of people, uh, clerks uh, and other people he knew, who, um, who say that he was a big reason they returned or, or came to the Catholic Church. Again, your book, what, is, what do you want the reader to get at? What's the legacy of your father through his speeches? Well, I think the most important legacy, obviously, um, is his approach to the Constitution, uh, known as originalism, and his, his approach to interpreting legal texts, other legal texts known as textualism, um, which— really kind of forced judges to return to the original public meaning of what laws in the Constitution meant when they were written. Um, that was not really a popular thing to do when my father was first on the court, but he was insistent in his opinions and speeches that that was how a good judge in the U.S. judicial system should behave. And so he turned a lot of people around, and, and now it's uh, originalism and textualism are central to um, – American jurisprudence, obviously not the only approach, but a much more important one than, than uh, 30 years ago. Uh, but beyond that, I, 
and I should say also in the speeches in this collection where he explains those approaches to the Constitution, he is not speaking only to lawyers. He is speaking to young law students and people who are interested in the law but not expert in the law. So they're very accessible. I, um, I don't have a law degree. I had an easy time following his arguments there. They're very well laid out. But I think uh, apart from that, he was, what comes across in these speeches is that he's a, a funny, engaging smart man who loves interacting with people. He loves speaking because it's a way to persuade people and engage with them. And that really comes through uh, in all of these speeches, no matter what the topic is. You know, one time I heard a question that was asked of him, you know, about whether the death penalty was cruel and unusual. And he says, hey, you're watching an old Western. Bad guy's going to be hanged. Does anybody in the crowd say, hey, this cruel, unusual punishment? Back then that was accepted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And his, he was often, um, he mentions the death penalty very often um, in his speeches as, as um, an example of, of how we need to remember what the founders thought. Now, if we think that the death penalty is cruel and unusual punishment now, then we should pass an amendment. We can't just have judges say, all right, this is cruel and unusual. We can't do it. We can't do this anymore. Um, that, that should be in the hands of the people, not in the hands of unelected justices. What is your favorite personal story about your father that you'd like the public to know? Well, there are a lot. Um, I think the most powerful one to me is one that happened um, only a few months before he died. I was a college professor living uh, pretty far away from the D.C. area where most of my family was. And I, I was just having a difficult time professionally for any number of reasons. Uh, just not wasn't the job I hoped it would be, and I was looking to, to leave the academy. And uh, I was nervous about telling my father because uh, he had been a professor. His father had been a language professor at Brooklyn College. And uh, I knew that my father was proud that I was a professor. Um, and I was afraid I'd be letting him down if I left that, that field. But that wasn't what happened at all. He was very supportive. He wanted me and my wife and our kids closer to him. And he really encouraged me to, to leave my job and find something closer to uh, uh, the rest of my family. And I did. I moved back up to the Northern Virginia, D.C. area in um, September of 2015. Got to spend a lot of great time with, with him uh, in the months before he passed away. And I can't help that there was something providential about my move up there so soon before he died. And I'm just very grateful he gave me that advice and encouragement. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to, to see him as often as I did in his last months. And again, your father, those who knew him, knew he was a, you know, a full-rounded person. He wasn't like just some academic. He enjoyed life. He enjoyed hunting, fishing, whatever, correct? Yeah, absolutely. He he loved getting out of the D.C. bubble. Uh, it was important for him to do that. Um, obviously, he loved his job on the Supreme Court. There's no denying that. And he was uh, obviously, I think, great at it. But he loved being with people from different walks of life, which is one of the reasons he loved hunting as much as he did. It was a chance for him to to get around, uh, be around people uh, who had no connection to D.C., who didn't have those sorts of same concerns. It was a way for him to kind of broaden his horizon a little bit. In summary, your father, Scalia Speaks, why did you write, Why did you put the book together? I shouldn't say you wrote it. Your father wrote it. But why, yeah. why did you decide yeah. to put it together? Uh, my dad did most of the hard work. The only hard work I had was deciding which ones to not include because there were so many fantastic ones. There were tough decisions involved. But uh, it was important for me to collect this, uh, to, to work on this book and to edit this collection because I want to make sure that uh, as many people as possible um, have easy access to his ideas and, and, uh, and his wisdom on a range of subjects. Uh, the law, of course, because I, I think it's important that people know what originalism is and why it's important, um, why it's the 
best way to approach the Constitution. Um, but uh, but he had wisdom to offer in other ways. And um, now that he's gone, he's not going to be able to deliver these speeches himself. So this is kind of a way to deliver them to a, to a mass audience after his death. I just want to add one personal note. When your father went to Xavier in 2011, my son was the cadet colonel, and he was one of the students who asked him to come to speak at Xavier. And your father's first reaction was no. Eventually, they started a dialogue and a written correspondence or whatever, and he eventually agreed to come up to speak at the ROTC ceremony at Xavier. Yeah, that's, and, that, and that speech is in this collection, and uh, I think that's great. Hey, look, it shows he was willing to be persuaded. <laughs> right, that's well, fantastic. I, your son was able to persuade him. Well, he said, convince me. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's impressive. Uh, your son should put that on a resume. He, he, he persuaded Justice Scalia to change his mind about something. Right. Well, you know, the, the correspondence between them, you know, is something that the copies or whatever will treasure, you know, forever. And, yeah. and, and most Americans, I think, treasure the memory of your father. Hopefully they'll pick up this book. The name of the book is Scalia Speaks. And I guess you can get it anywhere right now, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's on sale on Amazon. You can get the Kindle version there, the audiobook version, and you can get it at bookstores everywhere, Costco, Barnes & Noble. So it's easy to find. Christopher Scalia, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Uh, it's my, been my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on. Okay, well, you know, a little bit of history. Sad note, really, that Justice Scalia is not with us anymore. Now, those of you who've been following the show, you know we've been making some changes in, in our scheduling. We're going to be on, you know, football games, you know, barring football games. We're going to be on AM 970, The Answers, Saturdays from 6 to 7 o'clock, Sundays from 5 to 6. And again, that's barring football games. We are going to be on every Saturday in the morning at AM 570, The Answer, 8 o'clock in the morning each Saturday. So... You, you get three t- three chances to catch us during a week. Saturdays at 8 o'clock in the morning on AM 970, The Mission. Uh, AM 570, The Mission, I'm sorry. And at least there won't be any football games at 8 o'clock in the morning. At least I don't think so. And then Saturday, 6 to 7, barring football games. Sunday, 5 to 6, barring football games on AM 970, The Answer. Now, each week at uh, Thursday at the 5 o'clock hour on 970, The Answer, Kevin McCullough takes one of the questions that uh, people email to us, and our email address for these questions are askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Askmikeconnors at gmail.com. So if you have any questions, you can email us directly. We'll either answer the email questions during the, uh, the show here, or Kevin McCullough will choose one email question a week to ask us live on you know 970 The Answer, Thursdays at 5 o'clock. And I thank Kevin McCullough for what he's doing for us. And, of course, he was at the John Wayne Cancer Institute uh, a couple of weeks ago now when we were there. And, you know, one thing that a lot of people I've been talking about since came away with was how friendly, how accessible the members of the Wayne family were. And hopefully we're going to have some of them back on the air, you know, with us over the next few months. But everybody said, you know, I couldn't believe how accommodating, how approachable Patrick Wayne was, and he really is a very nice guy, and his mission in life is to raise money for cancer research in memory of his father, the great John Wayne. Now, again, as you heard earlier, we're having a Civil War Roundtable meeting on November 13th. The meeting's going to start at 5.30, doors open at 5.30. The cost for non-members is $60, which become a member, and then the cost is only $50. You get a three-course meal. And a lot of times, 
you know, we talk to people who go to the New York Historical Society, and it's a great event sometimes, but you pay 40 45 bucks to sit in an auditorium. Here, you pay $50, $60 to listen to a speaker, three-course meal, and the speakers are very approachable. You know, sometimes when they speak, they come out on a stage, they get whisked off the stage, you never get a chance to talk to them. But in these cases, you get a chance to talk to the speaker, and a lot of times the speaker is staying in the same same building, so they stay and stay in there all night, and they keep talking to you and answer your questions. And if you got something that bugs you about the Civil War and you want to ask them a question, believe me, this is the the place to do it. So if you want, give us a call if you want to show up at the Three West Club on November thirteenth. The phone number for reservations is seven one eight three four one nine eight one one seven one eight three four one nine eight one one. So. Again, remember to hear us each Saturday, 970 The Answer, at the 6 o'clock hour. 5 o'clock on Sundays, Saturdays, 8 to 9 on AM 970, AM 570. I'm getting mixed up. The Answer. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Hopefully we'll be with you next week. To sing this all away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all away. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>